before and the Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor. Grow up to be a hero and a scholar. The ten dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being a self-starter by 14. They placed him in charge of a trading charter. And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away, across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up. Inside he was longing for something to be a part of. The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, or barter. Then a hurricane came, devastation reigned. Our man saw his future drip, dripping down the drain. Put a pencil to his temple, connected it to his brain. And he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his claim. Well, the word got around, he said, this kid is insane, man. Look up a collection just to send him to the mainland. Get your education, don't forget from which you came. And the world's gonna know your name, it's your name. Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done. Just you wait. Just you wait. When he was ten, his father split full of it. Dead ridden two years later. See Alex and his mother bedridden. And welcome to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. It has been a crazy month of April and the beginning of May. All NFL draft stuff. We are shifting gears tonight. Just so you know, you can find us on Playmaker Mentality. You can download the podcast on iTunes. And this week, we are talking about sports society and stuff with someone super, super special. She is an author. She's been published in all kinds of places. She has a book coming out on September 6th called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. And I believe that she also has a new book coming out soon. I do not remember what the title is, even though she tweeted it out, and she can say it after I introduce her. Uh, But it's Jessica Luther joining us. Jessica, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So what is the name of your second book? Because I honestly don't remember it. <laughs> I'm co-writing it with Kavitha Davidson, and it, uh, the working title is How to Love Sports When They Don't Love You Back. So yeah, this is going to be an episode where we're going to talk about a lot of different material. I think this is a really important conversation to have, and I'm really excited to jump into it. But we're going to start sort of with your background, and what made you originally love sports? That's a really good question. I'm not sure. I mean, I think sort of in the cliche way that my dad loved it and for a long time it was just he and I until I was about 10 years old uh so I didn't really have a choice but to watch especially football with him um and then I am actually six feet tall which I guess a lot of people wouldn't know that um so I played sport I played basketball um when I was in junior high when I was a little seventh grader eighth grader and I think into ninth grade um and so I've just, I don't know, I've, I can't remember a time where I didn't love sports, so it's hard for me to sort of pinpoint the beginning of it. So which sport has been your favorite one to watch? Oh, over my lifetime, it would be football, which it's not anymore, and <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that. Um, I really enjoy, at this point, watching tennis, and I've been watching tennis since I was in high school, definitely, um, and when I was... Playing basketball, I watched it a lot more than I do as an adult. Like, I used to watch, like, anytime I could see women playing basketball when I was in high school, it was just everything to me. Um, 
but for whatever reason that sort of has faded for me um but yeah right now it's definitely tennis is my most favorite thing to watch so keeping it light what would you say is the happiest sports moment that you've ever experienced oh goodness i mean i went to the championship football game when florida state beat virginia tech in the um Sugar Bowl in the Superdome, um, I think in 1999 or early 2000, um, and I'm a Florida State alumni, and that's what I grew up with. My dad's Florida State alumni. It was a really big deal. Um, I was going to school there at the time, and we beat them, and it was very exciting, and so, like, personally, it was that, and then my other favorite memory is we used to live in a house that had two stories, and I'll just never forget this. It was when Oklahoma played Boise State, and what was the bowl? It was the Fiesta Bowl. I know exactly what you're talking about. And my husband went to bed. Like, he is not a sports fan. Um, And he went to bed, like, at halftime, maybe. And I can just remember that night, like, I literally kept running up the stairs and, like, waking him up because I needed to talk to someone (laughs) about what was happening. And he was so annoyed at me. But I was so, like, it was so fun to watch it like it was just like I just remember like the pure joy of watching that game and I needed someone this is obviously pre-social media um that I needed to share it with and so I just kept waking him up and being like you will not believe what just happened I I actually have to double check when that game happened because I'm 99% sure that I was in middle school at the time and I think I fell asleep (laughs) during the game and my dad didn't wake me up and then the next day he uh he left a note on my bed and was like, Ethan, you have to watch what happened last night. It was 2007. So I, I was, maybe I was awake for this. I don't remember because I was like 16 at the time. So if I did fall asleep, that would be pretty lame of me. But I just remember that I watched the highlights of that game and it was just the craziest play ever. Like the hook and lateral. We need to see yeah. more of those. Like that play was really well executed. It was- it was so beautiful. Like, everything about the end of that game was just so fantastic. Oh, my goodness. And, I mean, at that point, I was I, mean, I was in Austin. I was attending the University of Texas, so I had already sort of bought into the idea that I shouldn't like Oklahoma. So, um, in that way, it was even better and just, you know, underdog stories. And, oh, it was everything. That was the best. Yeah, you touched on uh, both your schools. We're going to get to that in a second. But mm-hmm. which athlete that you followed over the years – you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a Mount Rushmore. You can pick four. Who is on your Mount Rushmore of personal favorite athletes? And honestly, you can use any criteria you want. You can use criteria of how they played. You can use criteria of how they lived their lives, a little combination of both. Whatever you want. Who would be your top four? Wow, top four. I mean, I think no one that knows me will be surprised that number one is easily Serena Williams. Like, I'm sort of obsessed with her, um, everything about her. Oh, man. Like, I just want to name tennis players, so that's probably not fair. I mean, I remember watching Rebecca Lobo at UConn and just adoring her and the way that she played basketball. And, um, I mean, there was a period of time for me where, like, Lisa Leslie was everything. I got to go to the Atlanta Olympics in 96 and see the women play, and I was – I would have been 15 at the time, so I was playing basketball. Um, man, who else – I, it's funny because I want to, like, name all these basketball players. Like, that's when the magic with Shaquille and Penny was huge, and I watched, like, every game, and I loved them. Like, my, I'm just so happy right now thinking about them. Um, man, I don't know. It's gotten so much harder for me because I've had to learn to not love athletes. Yes, 
it's yeah. funny because I feel like in your head you're sort of seeing the dissonance that I feel like happens a lot, uh, mm-hmm. where you remember all the good memories and you sort of have an issue compartmentalizing things sometimes, or maybe you compartmentalize a little bit too well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends. I mean, like I think when you talk about like off the court or off the court is what I wanted to say because like I love Martina Navratilova and all of her politics and what she does but in that way I love Venus and Serena so I don't know man for I I don't know it's hard for me it's tough so you did say that you went to school at Florida State and Texas Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um what were I went to a small college so I never got the the huge D1 experience uh, other than maybe like attending games with friends on very occasionally so what was your experience like going to both of those schools I mean I loved it like I only applied to Florida State, like, I, that's where I was going to go, and um, I had already gone to football games with my dad, like, my whole life, um, and I went to, I think I went to every football game when I was there. Like, I, won, I had this one time when I had issues with my sciatica, and I had this thing where I popped that nerve, and I passed out, and I had to go to the doctor, and they put me on crutches, and they were like, you can't do anything. And I was like, well, there's a football game, so I'm going to I'm gonna go to that. So I, like, took my crutches to the football game with me. Um, but, I mean, it's fun, right? Like, I, I've now experienced the negative side of fandom and when people come after you as a group of fans. But, I mean, there is something to that whole thing about being part of the crowd and putting on the face paint and doing the chants and participating and, you know, having that incredibly low risk part of your identity be invested in this football team in my case. I mean, I did go to some of the other sports when I was there, but I definitely um, was mostly invested in football, which I mean, I thought would translate when I came to Texas, I watched Texas football and like, I definitely, I mean, I was here at UT when Vince Young basically won that championship for them. That was so exciting. I remember it viscerally from my living room, but I still, I, we've been here in Austin for 14 years and I have yet to go to a UT football game, which my dad chides me for all the time because he can't believe it. Um, I go to basketball much more here than I do football, but um, it's fun. Like there's something about that kind of gigantic crowd Um watching a sporting event where so many people are so invested in the outcome. I mean, that's, I think there's an addiction to that. And I know while you're at Texas, we talked about this before, but you actually tutored some of the athletes there. I did. I did that for a little while. So what was that experience like for you? And and can you name who you tutored and if they, uh, they did well in their classes? I don't know if I'm, I was thinking about this today. I was like, maybe I should stop saying who (laughs) I tutored. Um, yeah, I mean, I did, I mean, I tutored, like, baseball players and rowers and divers, and um, and that was all fun. But, yeah, my, my big ones were that I tutored LaMarcus Aldridge and Daniel Booby Gibson one summer, and they were both great in their own way. I mean, um, LaMarcus worked incredibly hard, and he was so kind, and he's just, like, the nicest guy. Um Daniel was different because he didn't really need me to tutor him. So there was a little chafing there. But then when it came time to, like, produce a paper, he was, like, a phenomenal writer. So it was really fun to read what he came up with, which he basically did by himself because he didn't really need my help. Um, But, yeah, it was more interesting for me 
to witness sort of the machine of sport from the inside. Um, it was difficult. I didn't really like that part of it. I didn't like all the monitoring that was going on, um, the almost babysitting that we had been asked to do. So that was why I ended up stopping it or quitting, I guess. I will say that I have a friend of mine who I went to undergrad with, uh, one of the most competent people I've ever met in my life. Like, she's running her own agency right now, actually for WNBA players only. And she specifically told me that she would never represent an, a male professional athlete because of all the babysitting that you have to do on a daily basis. And yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. I mean, one of the things for me, like, uh, Gibson was sort of a, I mean, he's like a local hero in Houston. I think his dad was a big deal. He was a big deal. Um, and so I remember like one weekend I had told him he needed to write so many pages or whatever. And then the guy who was like in charge of the tutoring pulled me into his office and he sat me down. He's like, well, you can't ask him to do that over the weekend because he's going home to Houston and there like literally won't be time. Like he's too big a deal. He won't have time to, to do that. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I don't <laughs> like not my paper. Um, but I mean, he would get pulled out of tutoring to go do interviews in the hallway. Um, just, you know, things I couldn't imagine having to deal with as like at the time I would have been, you know, 25, but imagine being like 19. Um, but yeah, the point when I quit, they had told us we needed to make sure that the kids were like cleaning up after themselves and throwing things in the garbage at the end of the session. And I was like, I'm not going to tell someone to do that. That's not what I'm doing. But I mean, I worked with some really, like I worked with this woman who ran the 400 meter, um, I just loved her. Like she was great. Um, and I really enjoyed all of that work, but, um, I also didn't, at some point she, they assumed that I had was writing her stuff, which was like, of course, patently untrue. And I felt very bad for her that they just assumed that she couldn't do the work herself. Um, and I, I also did not like that part of it. Yeah. Being a student athlete is really, really hard. Uh, I mean, I, I even had friends, and I went to a college where they don't offer scholarships, so everyone was sort of there of their own volition, but, I mean, my friends were still waking up at, like, five every day, going to the gym, and then they had, like, full course load, and then they had practice, and it is a lot to balance, so... Yeah, it, it's definitely. It's definitely tough to do it. I, I think that there should be better ways for the NCAA to sort of navigate the situation. One idea that uh, my really competent friend who actually, I believe, worked with Lisa Leslie before, which is why nice. I thought of her. Um, but she said, you know, one thing that a lot of these D1 schools should do is that they should have mandatory money management classes for these athletes. Mm. Uh, yeah. Because that's something that definitely I think a lot of them could use help with, and they're not getting well-trained on, especially when you see situations like Antoine Walker where he just spends all of his money because yeah. he doesn't know any better. And that's yeah. something that I, I think could help too. And this isn't really your bag, uh, but I'm interested to hear your opinion on the payment issue. Do you think that student-athletes should get paid? I mean, definitely ones who are making bank for the university. Um, I'm not as, yeah, I'm not as well-versed on all of it, so as far as, like, who should get paid and how much. and um, I think it's ridiculous that they can't control their image, that they don't have a say-so over any of that. Um, I think it's ridiculous that they don't have some sort of security around their physical health. 
that they don't have insurance that extends. I mean, they don't really get insurance while they're playing, but then forget it once they get out. Um, there's sort of ways that it could be so much better. And I definitely come down on the side of they should get paid. I don't know if I have like a detailed plan of what that should look like, but I don't buy into the idea of amateurism and purity and all those sorts of ideas. So, yeah. I would agree with that. I think it starts with, and this is something that they got rid of, but I think they need to bring back video games. I think they need licensing fees for their licenses, at the very least. Uh, yeah. Because those are the people who are making money for the university, and they deserve something. And There needs to be some sort of process in place, because it's gotten totally out of hand. And well, One of the things I think a lot about is the player from Alabama, um, Tyrone Prothrow. Yes. And I actually wrote a post, like, a year or so ago, because I was just like, where the hell is he? He was, like, a bank teller in Tuscaloosa. Um, and, you know, he was amazing, and he made that amazing around the head helmet catch, right? And then snapped his leg in the end zone, one of those horrific injuries that you wish you never had to see again. And, like, that's it, right? Like, Alabama still sells the poster because it's amazing, and he sees none of that, and yet he literally sacrificed his body for that team that pays their coach a ridiculous amount of money. Um, so in those moments, I'm just like, how can we ethically say that these guys don't deserve something for what they're doing? It's really hard for me. I definitely agree with that. We're going to transition now to the society portion of this podcast. We're going to talk about your expertise Um Sexual assault issues, specifically <laughs> with college football players, um, college athletes in general. A little bit of a downer, but I kind of actually wanted to start, and I, I think that you can probably work in sort of why you do what you do into this situation that's happening in Florida State right now with Mario Pender, uh, mm-hmm. who got immediately, like, he got arrested. Uh, I believe he was found, like, choking out his girlfriend or something like that. Like, there he was a domestic her, abuse. Yeah, and... Mm-hmm. It was fascinating to me that now we've seen three examples recently in Florida State. We saw maybe even a few more, actually. I'm not even including, like, Tito Wilson in this. Who, I don't know if he did domestic, but he did something else really bad. But you had Jameis Winston, you had Dalvin Cook, and you had Mario Pender. Uh, and two of those cases were a little bit slower to get put together. And it seemed like there wasn't a lot of activity that was happening in the forefront, but behind the scenes, clearly things were moving to potentially uh, absolve some of these players. Pender, I think partially because he wasn't as good of a player, was sort of left to the wolves. And it's funny because even in the reports that I saw, he said he would not talk to any policeman until Jimbo Fisher was at the scene of the crime. Yeah, um, I think he was arrested, or I think he was charged with the resisting without violence or something because he refused to get in the car until... Fisher showed up. Which is a, a fascinating dichotomy for me. Uh, so I guess to start, first, talk about like what brought you to write about this issue, because I know Florida State's very intrinsically attached to it. Mm-hmm. And also, I guess how you think this case is teachable in some way. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, part of it, Florida State's definitely part of how I sort of became the lady who writes on this. Um, I, I mean... It was the summer of 2013 when I sort of started to pay attention to it, and I can't remember that part of it. Like, I know that I I remember learning about the case at Vanderbilt, which um, was four players who were arrested in uh, late July or early August for raping another student. Um, That is still ongoing. Uh, One of them has been found guilty of the four. 
um, the next trial is for one of them this summer, and then who knows what's going to happen with the other two. But then at the same time, for whatever reason, I remember also reading that Navy was having a, there was a trial for three Navy shipmen, midshipmen for raping another student, uh, football players. And I remember that these things were happening at the same time that Johnny Manziel was possibly selling his signature. And like, all anyone was talking about was Manziel with that stupid signature. And I was like, well, there are like seven football players who are in trouble right now for um, rape. And that seems like a big deal. And that really struck me. And then I ended up writing about it in for the Atlantic sometime in September. There was like a, I don't know if you remember, there was a big five-parter at Sports Illustrated about Oklahoma State. And everyone made fun of it because it was sort of exactly what we all thought they were going to find. Because Thayer Evans also went to Oklahoma, so people thought that he was sort of just, like, shading Oklahoma State. Yes. Um, And then, and they had teased that they were going to have a thing on sex. That was what Thursday's portion of it was going to be, and we all, like, sort of knew what that was. And I ended up writing about recruitment, which is something I've written a fair amount about, and there's a chapter in my book about it. Uh, And I mentioned the rape cases, and people got mad at me (laughs) Rape or mentioning the rape cases, and um, but that was sort of the first time where I started to think about the spectrum like all of the behaviors that um, the sexist behaviors that happen on these teams that are cultivated on these teams, sort of the extreme, and then the much less extreme. And then, so it was on my radar at that time in September, and then in November was when Jameis Winston, when the reports broke that he had been accused. This, the December before, so 11 months previously, and then nothing had really come of it. And, I mean, I was paying so much attention. Like, I was so excited about the team. It was really fun. We finally had an, an offensive line, which we hadn't had in a really long time. And we certainly had had just, like, a string of disappointing quarterbacks, and suddenly here's this kid, and he's, like, phenomenal and he had gone into Death Valley and just destroyed Clemson, like the biggest loss they'd ever had at home. Um, he had just started the, like for real Heisman chatter around him, and then this story broke, and I didn't re- I didn't really know what to do with it. Like I didn't know how to feel. I still kind of don't know how to. I mean, people ask me a lot about how I make sense of it, and I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. But the thing that really got me was the coverage of it, and sort of how much was about him and his career and what was going to happen to it. And I just kept thinking, well, there's a, there's someone else in the story. Um, and at that point in my life, I already knew a few survivors of sexual assault and thinking about them reading this stuff that these people are writing and saying, um, I just decided I wanted to write something. And the thing about writing on this topic is that, as, as I found is that once you start to do it and survivors think that you, when they appreciate what you do, then they start to reach out and tell you that directly. And that has such a huge, that's had a huge impact on me personally and my desire to keep doing this work. But it certainly was, like, I don't know if it had been another school with such a gigantic case, if I would have, paid as much attention to it. It, I mean, it so happened to be my team um, that I was already paying a bunch of attention to. And yeah, so then I just, I mean, I I don't think anyone probably would have guessed that it would be such a sustained conversation (laughs) that we would be here now almost three, you know, or two and a half years later 
still having it. Um, I definitely didn't think that it would be something I would like become the lady who writes about. I never thought I'd write a book on it. Oh my goodness. So, um, but yeah, it's really hard once you start, it's really hard to stop, um, because of people who reach out to you and all the stories that you start learning about. And then and in this case, like, cause it keeps happening. So, um, yeah, I mean, people sent me the Pender stuff, like as soon as it broke that something had happened, people send me everything. Um, and I don't really know what to make of it cause it is strange. The, I'm not surprised that he asked for Fisher. I think that's a weird thing. Like they're supposed to ask for a lawyer. Um, most of the time they're trained pretty well in lawyering up. And certainly we know from the New York Times work on this about the relationship between the Tallahassee Police Department and the FSU Athletic Department, that there's overlap there. And we've seen this with other schools. I mean, the most recent was Butch Jones, the head coach at Tennessee. Uh, with the lawsuit there, we found out that the Tennessean uncovered that, you know, before, God, that was horrible. It was like the woman reported that she had been raped in the apartment with the two players and they before they went to collect evidence at the apartment they called butch jones to tell him and he called the player um which is just like blows my mind it's just such bad police work it's just so bad um oh my gosh now i'm all upset about it but um that kind of stuff we know happens in tallahassee right um I was glad that they dismissed him, but I agree that it's hard. It's just hard to know what they're doing. Like he's not important enough, right. To protect. Um, it's also possible that it was just really horrific, the violence, right. That even those people (laughs) couldn't dismiss sort of what he did. Um, and we had just, there's a whole conversation right now specifically around domestic violence when men strangle, women because of Tyreek Hill, who was just drafted um, to the Chiefs. And where did he play ball? He played at Oklahoma State, um, and then he got kicked out because of the domestic violence incident and moved right. to, like, I think, Western Alabama. Yes, that's right. And um, and he pled, you know, he pleaded guilty and to the domestic violence case, and he had strangled her. And part of, there's been a discussion around the Chiefs drafting him, um, because of that particular thing that the odds of someone who has strangled a partner, um, the odds of them killing a partner later on, uh, goes up significantly. So it's possible in the Pender case at Florida state that he did something very bad, um, to the point where they knew that whenever that description of violence came out, that it, that plus he's not good enough player, um, and he asked for Fisher. Like, I feel like he made yeah. a really bad mistake as far as, like, implicating the department, the I, athletics department. I miss I Bobby know. Bowden. Like, Bobby Bowden, we don't know all the things that he was doing in Tallahassee. You might know better than me. But yeah, at, the same, at the same time, though, at least there were some players who you could pretty much characteristically say, this guy can root for, like, Christian Ponder, Rhodes Scholar Christian Ponder, Rhodes Scholar Byron Roll. You know, yeah. we got a couple in there. Uh, yeah. I also want to say that the Kansas City media has done, I think, a really mm-hmm. good job with covering Tyree Kill. Uh, yeah, I've been really impressed. I mean, 
one of the things, one of the chapters in my book is about sports media. And I originally wrote this thing like a year and a half ago. And I think if I could rewrite it, which God, I would never want to actually rewrite it. But if I, I mean, I would have to say something different probably. Um, it's probably even at, at this point a little bit dated because sports media is getting better. Um, it's also sometimes horrible still, of course, but, um, there are moments where I think, okay, like maybe this conversation is starting to change um, in fundamental ways. And I feel like what's happening in Kansas City has just been so important and they've handled it really well. And it's been a very smart on point conversation about community responsibility and the potential of violence. And um, yeah, it's been really good. To, it's It's been nice to watch that. I definitely agree with that. And I was listening to a press conference uh, Andy Reid post-draft, and the reporters were hounding him on this issue. They were like, you came here saying you want to be a part of this community, and now you're inviting him into our community. We don't know of what's happening behind the scenes. Do you take responsibility for that? And I think that that's a really important conversation to have, especially given how sensitive that community is to um, yes. what happened with Javon Belcher a few years ago. Yeah, uh, with I mean, it's one of the most horrific... Issues. examples of domestic violence that we have, right, is in Kansas City. So, um, I mean, I yeah, I think it's really interesting that there's a frustration with Reed and with the Chiefs in that, and this is one I feel all the time reporting this, is like you just want transparency. Like the media just wants you to explain what you're going to do for him. Moving on, I wanted to also talk to you about some of the patterns you saw, because I know that you are a very in-depth researcher. Uh, I I know you know how to research. So as you worked on this book, we don't want to give too much away. want to leave the people with a reason to buy it. Uh, But were there any top-level patterns that you noticed happened in many of these assault cases? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, one of the big things for me that I realized as I was looking over the list of cases that I had found, which I think were some... since 1974, I've located at least 115, which even my numbers are weird because over the last five or six to 10 years, um, Google has made it a lot easier to track local tiny papers when they report on stuff. So it's very hard. Like everything I have from like 1974 to like 1995 is, there's probably a lot more that I just don't know about, but, um, one of the things that really struck me, and I, I wrote about this in the book, is there's so much gang rape, and I don't even know. I'm like not smart enough to really like say much more beyond that, but um, compared to any stat I could find on the percentage of gang rape, it's very high, the numbers that I found. And then outside of it, even if there aren't multiple perpetrators from the same team, there often are sort of bystanders or witnesses, or there always just seemed to be more than one player uh, involved in a lot of this stuff, which makes sense on some level when we think about sort of who they hang out with each other, they do things in groups, they're used to that sort of loyalty. Um, But it's also incredibly troubling and sort of suggests the importance of tackling this in the locker room with the team um, from a sort of... uh, base level, right? But um, yeah, that's, that's probably the most disturbing one. I mean, there's a lot of patterns with sort of what coaches choose to do, what they don't do. Um, the like 
giving of chances over and over and over and over again in ways that are really troubling. Um, you know, there's a whole chapter on how the NCAA doesn't do anything. Um, just over and over again, doing nothing in the way that you would expect them not to do anything. The NCAA is pretty useless. I mean, that's the issue. It's a confederation. And, you know, when you're a confederation, you have to be beholden to a degree to your members. And your members don't want you to do anything. So you're right. not going to do anything. Uh, but the example that comes to mind, we talked about a little bit earlier, is what happened at Tennessee where you had a football player from the locker room, Dre Bowles, step up and take responsibility for the girl. And he allegedly, I think it's pretty, I don't, I think it's been testified on, um, but he got intimidated. He got beaten by fellow football players, uh, including one guy who was in the NFL right now. It's just really crazy. And it's this mob mentality in the locker room that, I know that I've spent a lot of time talking with like Wade Davis, who runs You Can Play. Yeah, and this he he's the best. Um and one of the things that we always that I've talked to him about, I've talked to some other people about it as well, is I think that a lot of the locker room narrative is overblown. Uh the mm-hmm. thought that like someone can't succeed in a certain locker room. And I do think that to a degree that's true. I just think that the locker room has to be on a good team. Because the good team locker rooms don't have these problems. The good team yeah. locker rooms know how to get things done. And but what it comes to is that Tennessee, like, isn't a very good team. Uh, and right. they're not a team. They don't have a coach who can maintain accountability. And they don't have an environment where they're able to figure things out. And to that point, I also think that Belichick versus Saban in some minds. When you're an NFL coach and a player does something wrong, I think that there's less incentive to cover it up than if you're in college. First of all, there's more of a fatherly element in college, in my opinion, where, you know, if Nick Saban sees that one of his players screws up, he might be more willing to say, I want to give him another chance because I, I know the guy for whatever that means. But then also, I think you're trying to get mothers to get their kids to go to your school, and they're not going to be able to do that if all of a sudden all these cases are coming out that these kids are getting into trouble and doing awful things. So yeah. it's a weird dichotomy to me, for sure. Another thing that I've noticed, and I want to hear what your thought of, on this statement is, is when a lot of these cases come out on Twitter or in the media, we hear the same phrase over and over again. And that phrase is, we don't have all the facts. Uh, we can't really speculate on it because you don't have all the facts. From your perspective, do you think that that phrase makes sense in a lot of these contexts? And, and why do you think that way? No, I mean, I think it's a phrase that's used to obscure, especially, I mean, most of the time we're getting it from people who probably have way more of the facts than any of us will ever have about it. Um, so it's, I mean, I think this is hard because I do think that everyone has a responsibility to learn as much as they can. Uh, one of the things, one of my roles sort of about this is I try really hard not to talk about cases that I don't know a lot about, that I haven't read stuff about. Um, I try to be really clear about what I do know and how much I've studied up on the case and if I've read police reports and done all that stuff. Um, so I'm transparent in how much I actually know when I'm having a conversation about it. At the same time, I think it's really important that when we talk about domestic violence and sexual assault, the, the idea that like we need to know the whole truth or we need to know all the facts um, is a really convenient statement in a society that 
no matter how many facts they have or how much of the truth they have gained around a case, will find a reason not to believe it. Um, we have seen this over and over again, even when people are convicted. There are still people out there who think that, despite everything that we know, that um, it's still not enough. We don't we don't have enough information. And so it's it's a really easy statement to latch onto because it's all there's never enough. There's never enough um, for a lot of people who often just literally don't want to believe that this has happened, that it, there wasn't violence, that women lie, all those sorts of things. So I, I do think that it's important to know as much as possible and to be clear about how much you know and to make, if you're going to, especially if you're going to write about it or talk about it like an expert, to do the work around it. Um, at the same time, I think people really use it as a crutch so they don't actually have to have any judgment or make any decisions or feel an ethical or moral um, in any direction i think that's the best answer i've heard to that question because that was something that i mean i, I see it a lot whenever I it's on it twitter a lot too. specifically i just want to say i see it when a player on someone's favorite team has an incident mm-hmm. like this happen to them um yes. i mean i'll be honest in 20 in 2012 2013 i don't remember which one but when aaron hernandez that situation happened i was yeah. like I don't know what happened. I don't want to judge what happened. I mean, I don't know if he killed that guy. And then, of course, the evidence came out, and it became very clear that he killed that guy. Um, but yeah. it's like one of those things where I I understand the logical fallacy of it, but I also get why a lot of people say it, if that makes right. sense. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is one of the things that I talk a lot about is sort of um, – the danger of the idea that I want people to believe people who report, right? Like I want them to hold in their minds the idea that that report is true. Um, I understand that that conflicts for a lot of people with sort of innocent until proven guilty in the criminal justice system. Um, but that also serves true for the person who's reported, right? Like, there's no evidence outside of your own belief that this person must be lying. Um, and that's really just damn difficult to do, right? Like the idea that you can hold that this person is telling the truth and also innocent until proven guilty is really a hard thing to do. And it makes us really uncomfortable. And I just think people should try to do it. And we would all be a lot better off in how we talk about this stuff and the compassion and care that we bring to the conversation um, about it, even though that's hard. I just, I don't know. Um, I get the impulse. I have the impulse sometimes, and I have to really work at it. Um, But we're so unfair in how we cover this stuff most of the time. And I think it's been said, a lot of these rules that we think about, even innocent until proven guilty, they're best served in representing the person who who has had more cards stacked against them in life. Uh, Right. It's best served in the minority. And I think that it's very clear in a lot of these cases that, and I think that this is another thing just on a larger holistic level with America, uh, we don't do that. A lot of our criminal justice systems take the safe route. You know, uh, they, they do the thing that they think will play well to the largest amount of people or in clay travis's case he does the thing that he knows will piss people off yeah Um, yeah but i mean yeah it's 
it's interesting in how we're in this really interesting moment right now culturally with our um, overall questioning of the criminal justice system from top to bottom, right? And so this sort of questioning of the bias of police officers when they interact with suspects all the way up to how cases are presented to grand juries, um, how jurors in an actual criminal trial handle stuff, right? Um, All the biases that are just everywhere. And so, I mean, that's one of the things for me, people will say, well, innocent until proven guilty. And the stats on proven guilty are just horrific. Like we have an idea of how systemic and ubiquitous the crime of sexual violence and domestic violence are. And yet we also know that so few people are ever convicted of it. And a lot of that is coming from the way that I mean, police officers are people in the world, too, and they don't believe victims a lot of the time, right? And they're working against that. Detectives do the same thing. DAs do the same thing. Um, jurors, for sure, don't believe victims. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting moment where on so many levels in a lot of different ways we see people sort of pushing and questioning law enforcement and, and the criminal justice system that I think – is so important, um, and especially for me and the kind of work that I do. Um, a lot of people hate that so much. They get very uncomfortable with the idea that this thing that's supposed to protect all of us possibly doesn't do that and possibly favors them. People who might be favored by the system are the ones who often get the angriest when we question um, how it works. So, yeah. Building on your thoughts about incarceration, uh, one of the best pieces I think you've written, uh, which was really fascinating to me, was the piece you did provocative where you met Crystal Mangum, who was the accuser in the Duke lacrosse case, which happened 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. So I think, first of all, uh, just from a historical sense, because I know for me, like, I, I kind of knew what was going on, but I was 15 or 14, so I didn't know everything that was going on. Uh, if you want to quickly just set the scene of what happened and how you perceive it was covered by the media and also, I guess, how the DA sort of played it, because I think that was pretty fascinating, too. Yeah, I mean, the DA is actually sort of the piece we don't talk about enough, I think. Um, yeah, so this was 10 years ago. There was – it was the Duke lacrosse team. I think – I can't – I'm sorry. I can't remember the exact number. There were a lot of them. 40-something of them. They're all white except for one player. Uh, This is Durham, North Carolina, which has its own issues with race and class. Um, And these guys held a house party during spring break, and they hired two strippers. Uh, I think one woman was Latina, and then the other woman, Crystal Mangum, um, was a black woman. And she left the house and then ends up reporting that three, I think maybe originally she said four, and then um, three of the players are, are arrested eventually for sexual assault. Um, and it just became a thing in a way that I think a lot of people are trying for 10 years have tried to make sense of why this case, um, you know, whoever knows, I, I often find why certain cases blow up to be incredibly strange. Um, there are a lot of things at play of this sort of black and white, rich and poor, um, is happening in the South. You sort of have these, you know, preppy white guys playing this preppy white sport. Um, this idea that athletes are entitled and 
all these sort of things went into play and the media really did jump on it pretty hard. Um, there was a lot of campus activism around it, which maybe now for a lot of people seems uh, obvious, but I don't, you know, that kind of activism around sexual assault necessarily, I think we're in a special wave of it right now. So it seems ubiquitous at this point, but, um, and so a lot of people felt like the media had condemned these players found, you know, they were found guilty in the court of public opinion. Um, and the DA definitely stoked the flames. Like he definitely did things that he was later found to have violated ethics. Um, and the way that he talked about the case in the public, um, and so what ended up happening was they were charged and eventually the DA, he dropped the charges and then they, he is brought up on ethics violations. So the attorney general steps in and has a press conference where he says that they believed that these guys were innocent and that he wasn't going to charge the woman because he thinks it's possible that she believes that happened to her. And, and then, yeah, this DA is disbarred. Um, for what he did in this case. And she eventually um, ended up in prison for murdering her boyfriend at the time, who she maintains was trying to attack her and that it was self-defense and very much believes that people hate her because of, you know, people believe she is the ultimate liar, um, that she ruined these guys' lives, that she's the prime example of the lying rape, you know, rape victim. Um, and she thinks that she feels that that played a role in her and people disliking her and putting her in jail. I will say one of the most powerful parts of the article you wrote, and I'm not going to quote anything, but there's a portion where you're pretty much going through what everyone did after the incident. And pretty much everyone, like, went on with their lives, they got jobs, and then you go to her, and she's in jail, and she really couldn't get out of the rut, and it really does show sort of who is being marginalized here. One thing, though, that I I, I had thought of before, and I think that this brought it up, is at the time, uh, she was anonymous, as many victims are. Yeah, and she came forward, eventually. Which like, is... we know her name because she came forward. Yeah, so, I guess from your perspective... How does the anonymity factor change the way that you look at these cases in terms of the information you can get? And also, I guess, how should it change the way that the public looks at these cases? Because I feel like it should give, yeah. we should give more rope to the victims then because there is a risk for them coming forward. Oh, yeah, there's a humongous risk. Um, I mean, I heard T. Christian Miller, or maybe I read, but he definitely was giving a talk. So I, I read the quote, maybe. Um, he wrote that piece with, He's the ProPublica reporter who wrote the piece with the Marshall Project reporter, whose name I can't remember, about the um, the woman who was found guilty of giving a false rape report, and it turned out that she actually had been raped, and sort of this amazing piece that they did about false reporting um, last year. And he, so he had been asked this question about anonymity, and he said this thing about how it plays into the shame, like it it you know, sort of just makes it seem shameful that someone has been raped because they are anonymous. And I, I mean, like, I understand that at the same time, having not worked with a bunch of survivors to tell their stories, um, I mean, it, shame maybe, but also just like safety. Um, people really hate people who report 
it's like amazing to me the the level of it um and so i absolutely respect survivors who don't feel like they can put their name out there um because yeah it can just be so damaging people are so so mean and so horrible um i mean it's hard because it does i mean it definitely makes it harder to report right um it's hard to find people sometimes i've gotten pretty good at it but um at the same time, if you really wanted to know someone's name that badly, you can't always find it. Like, no one is mm-hmm. completely anonymous in these cases, necessarily, because the way the system works. Um, but I do think, for now, because of the way that our society handles this issue and treats people who come forward, like, there's not really... I don't see a way around anonymity. Um, retaliation is a real thing, and, you know because you've been a survivor who wants to talk about that experience, you shouldn't have to worry that you're going to be fired from your job or, you know, that your perpetrator is going to come back and harm you. Um, and I definitely know survivors who have not come forward for those exact reasons. And I always think they're, I mean, that's always legitimate. Uh, I agree. In my opinion, this is just an opinion that I have. I think that a criminal justice system is best served for how, it can serve as a way to both punish the people who deserve to be punished, but also rehabilitate. Um, and I'm just curious, in your position, do you think that there is a method or a way, or do you? how would you go about potentially instituting some sort of rehabilitation program? Uh, because that's something that I think in all these cases, like in the NFL, there were 65 cases of domestic violence between 2000 and 2015. That's only the reported cases, because I know of at least a couple that weren't reported. The maximum suspension before, like, the Greg Hardy issue was four games, which is nothing. And none of them went to jail. And I think that, like, the big thing for me is that if you commit assault or domestic violence, I think that jail time needs to be mandatory. Because there needs to be some sort... You can't just... You're a citizen of America. You need to get punished in some way, right? But... I I also do think that while we can't just throw it out and say they didn't understand what they did, and I think that they need to be punished for what they did, I think that there is something to be said for having a rehabilitation process, right? Do you think that there's a way to do that at this point? I don't know a ton about rehab. It's actually really hard to find stuff on this, right? Like, we have a sort of obsession with punishment um, as the answer, which is always an incredibly dangerous way to go about this, because we know that that can lead to increased violence and um, danger for the victims themselves. Um, And then, yeah, if they're getting thrown in jail, they're probably not getting the kind of rehabilitation um, that we would want to see. Um, So I'm not sure that I can talk very authoritatively about rehab and what that looks like. I mean, I'm really interested in moments. I mean, I'm, sort of obsessed with that DeAndre Levy piece at Players Tribune that was a couple weeks ago where he talked about his journey. And of course he's not a perpetrator that we know of in any way, Um, but just sort of his own personal journey and learning about, I mean, his thing was about sexual assault specifically, but about consent and like what it looks like and how he didn't know what it was before. And he didn't understand how sexism played into all these ideas that these players had about women that would manifest in dangerous, violent ways sometimes. Um, 
And it's just like, what, what happened there, man? Like, how did, how did you have that enlightened moment where you like get it? Like, how do we get people to get it? Um, I'm way more interested in that than, Mm. um, than after the reaction to it. I mean, it's important. I think rehab is important and the idea of second chances is very important, especially with this kind of, especially we're talking about like domestic violence because often the women in the, in these cases, like this means a lot to them too. Um, they don't necessarily leave and they're financially and emotionally reliant on this person who's abused them. Um, so yeah, I wish I could say more on that part of it, but I'm a huge fan of the idea of prevention. Um, I'm also like the biggest cynic about all of this. So we start talking about this stuff and I start being like, nothing will change. <laughs> We're stuck like this. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope it does change. I mean, DeAndre Levy is an interesting guy. Uh, he is, uh, he, he's one of the leaders of that locker room, but he's very, he has an interesting way of thinking about the world. I know a couple of Lions people seem to say he's a great guy though, which is awesome. Uh, but I do think that a lot of it is, and, and I understand the cynicism from your end because I know you must wade through day after day all these cases where it, where these women are totally victimized and it's tough to see a light on the other end of the tunnel. And I, I think part of it also for sure is entitlement. I mean, we had the video where former employee of ESPN, Chris Carter, was telling players to get a fall guy. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's, it's like cases like that where there's this like sense of entitlement and now we're seeing it happen in a lot of our briles. It seems like the walls will be coming down a little bit at Baylor and we'll see how that continues to unravel. But I definitely think that entitlement comes into play. Anyway, I want to end this portion by just generally, I think we've had a really substantial discussion about this, which has been really good. Uh, hopefully we've talked about some things that people hadn't heard before. I didn't want to just repeat Katie Nolan's interview with you, which was really good as well. And, we'll, and by the way, we'll talk about Katie at the end of the show because Katie is forever welcome on this podcast if she ever wants to come on. Um, but I, I guess how can people listening to this, when a situation like this comes up again, or maybe even in their own personal lives, um, be allies for women, Yeah. allies for the victims, be helpful, uh, when instances like this happen again. Yeah, I mean, and I say this all the time, and I'll just say it till I die. Um, I think the number one thing, the absolute number one thing you can do is remember that there's a survivor and that there's a victim and imagine that they can hear what it is that you're saying. Um, I think that can, like, fundamentally change the way that people talk about it. And I, I think people don't really have an understanding of how impactful for victims – what they hear is they are waiting for someone to doubt them. They assume that people will shame them. They just are standing, like they are so ready to receive that um, and internalize it and hold it in and believe it. And when you don't do that, it's, it has such an, it shouldn't have such an impact. Like it makes me mad when that, me just saying I believe that something happened to someone like means something um means a lot but yeah I I mean it's in some way it's not that hard to be an ally in these moments it's literally being empathetic to the idea that this actually happens that someone actually was the victim of violence and 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I just, everyone knows someone who's a victim. And if you don't know that they are, there's probably a reason that they never told you. And that's something that you should sit with and think about too. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that, that moment where you can choose to believe them or not and listen to them. And it's a huge one. It's just gigantic. Yeah. I, I think you said the magic word. You have to put yourself in someone's shoes and be empathetic because if you take the me out of empathetic, then your worldview is just pathetic. <laughs> Which I will say, I was proud of that when I came up with that like two years ago. And I will, I will stick with that saying. It's a good saying. Um, it is. I, I mean, empathy is really, yeah. um, in short supply. I agree. And I think it's important to be as empathetic as possible. Like, uh, I was talking with people about the New North Carolina bathroom law, um, who disagreed with me on it. And it was interesting to hear their perspectives. Uh, and it was interesting to sort of see how we had different senses of empathy about it. Anyway, we're going to move on to the final portion of the podcast, the stuff portion, where we talk about random things. And we have a couple of things on the docket. Uh, we're going to start with romance novels because you talk yes. about them a lot. Um, so I, I'm not a huge romance novel person. Funnily enough, uh, I, I, I creative write, so I have a couple of novel ideas bouncing around. And one of them actually is a romance novel, which I, I've started like sketching out and I just haven't really had time to work on it too much. Yeah. Um, but what made you love them in the first place? Uh, I was in grad school. And so I, I must have this thing where I just do depressing work because my dissertation that I never finished was a history dissertation of 17th century slavery in Barbados, English empire. And so it was just horrible stuff that I was reading all the time, um, written in the 1600s. And um, for whatever reason, I read a romance novel. And at this point, it's one of those where I'm like, I don't, I was on a research trip and I read one and I was like, oh my God that made me happy. Like I feel joy at the end of this book. And in that way, it's an addiction. Like, you know, I think people try to, I mean, people don't like romance novels because women like them. Um, but to sort of say that they're too generic or formulaic, right? I love the formula. The formula means everything to me that I know that at the end of the book, I'm going to feel happy <laughs> is like, I just, oh, I just love that. Um, I can trust that in the novel. Um, I mean, I read junk sometimes and I have to stop because it's crap or there's issues around consent or something, you know, it's not like, I think everything in the genre is amazing, but, um, like you're not a 50 shades person, I'm guessing. I mean, I read it. Yeah. I mean, no, it's not like, I'm, yeah, no. But um, but there's so much amazing – it's just like any genre. Like, there's so much amazing writing, and then you find it, and it's so spectacular, and then you're so happy at the end of it that, like, compared to what I do in my real-life work – I mean, I literally will be writing something, or I'll interview a survivor, or I'll have to read a court case, or whatever, and I – will just be so overwhelmed in the moment and I will just stop like at two in the afternoon and just like go into my bedroom and lay down and read a romance novel. Cause I can guarantee that like it, you know, it's going to be so much safer and happier for me. Um, and so, yeah, I just, 
appreciate it. I just appreciate that that exists and I can count on it. So what books are you reading now? Oh, I was like... All genres, not just romance, but romance can be included. Well, it's almost always just romance, (laughs) honestly. Um, Yeah, I'm reading, I don't know, I can't even remember the title of the book. I'm about to read an Alicia Rye book. I love Mm. Alicia Rye. She's spectacular. Um, But, yeah, what's on my nightstand right now? I'm going to read Ball Don't Lie, which, shoot, names are my worst thing. This is why I didn't survive grad school. (laughs) Um, I have Indentured, which is Ben Strauss and Jonah Sarah's book, sitting there um, waiting. And then I have, um, oh, my goodness, I'm not going to remember her name now. Oh, man. I also need to read Saga, the graphic novel. Oh, yes. Are you a graphic novel person? I'm not really, but then my friend Dan Solomon, who I wrote the piece about Baylor with back in August, um, and he and I are good friends, which is why we ended up writing that, and he gave it to me for, like, holidays over a year ago now, whenever – and he was like, this is written for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> you need to read this, Jessica Luther. And I'm horrible because I only read romance novels. So I still have it, and it's just sitting there. And so that's my goal. Um, when I finish these two features that I'm working on, I'm going to read. Uh, yeah, so I am a graphic novel person. So, like, nice. I like some of my favorite books, and I'm a believer in, like, I think that comics – are a legitimate adult book medium. Oh, me too. I I think that if you don't believe that, then you just haven't read the right books. And, like, some of my favorite ones that I've read are, I mean, Fun Home is great. I don't know if you've ever read read Fun Home Home before. I have actually read that. Fun Home is very good. Um, uh, Blankets by Craig Thompson is really good. Um, Oh, there's this book, and I always forget it. It's like this 80s retro book. It's an analog for, like, HIV and the... um, in the 80s, about these teenagers in Seattle who all get, like, really grotesque faces um, because they, like, have sexual... Like, when you have sexual contact with people, like, okay. weird things happen. It. It, it's, it's, like, about, like, angst and... Oh, it's so good. Um, one of my favorite books I ever read is this minimalist graphic novel by this author named Jason. Uh, it's called Hey, Wait. And it's literally, like, the most simplistic drawings. It's, like, all, like, big shapes. Um... But it's this really poignant story, and I'm someone who, like, for some reason, like, I like really simple writing. It stands out to me more when it's, like, a really simple story, and just, like, you can read through the lines, and the emotions are just, like, really well told. And, like, that that graphic novel is one of my favorite books ever. It's so good. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, and and I mean, I I still have not read um, Ta-Nehisi's Black Panther yet. That's on my list. Okay. It's on my okay. list. Have you read it yet? No, no. Right, no, it's well. not normal. It's not a thing that I know a lot about. I'm learning more because my son is seven mm. and into this much more than I. Like, we went to free comic book day mm-hmm. so that he could get his, he got Pokemon and I don't even remember what else. But, Pokemon, Pokemon uh, is still getting those young kids, huh? Oh, my God. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, he loves it. Um and it's so great. Like, he has this amazing graphic novel that's all about the human body. Oh, cool. And so, like, he'll have questions, and we'll just go and flip the novel, of you know, the graphic novel, and, and that's he'll read about the liver or whatever. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Um, so, 
finally-ish. Uh, you're in Austin, which mm-hmm. is a really cool city. I've had Sig- Have you met Sigmund Bloom before? Because I had him on the show a no, while ago. And he's I also, haven't. he lives in Austin, and he's I really know, awesome. Yeah. Um, so he's someone who you should definitely hang out with. But what's it like living in Austin? I know right now, actually, we just had the vote about Uber and yeah. Lyft and that entire, do they actually leave today? That's what I heard. I heard they're out for now. They're, they're um, out. Um, yeah. We're recording on right. Monday, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, like, what's it like to live there? I mean, everyone who lives there, I've heard, loves it. I mean, we do love it. Um, we've been here for 14 years, and we don't have plans to move. Um, we like the community, and um, there is something, once you have a kid and you have a network of people, the idea of, like, giving that up and starting out, starting somewhere new is terrifying. Um, but, yeah, Austin is fun. It has an amazing food scene. Um, back when we were cooler younger people we really liked the music scene a lot um it's much harder now to do that it's just a fun place um you know the alamo draft house is our famous movie theater that we're now exporting everywhere but hmm. where you eat and watch the watch the movies but they do all sorts of fun stuff um fun screenings around different things um i don't know i just like it. I mean, Austin is interesting because it has this reputation of being an incredibly progressive blue place, which overall um, it is, but we also have such huge problems um, as far as segregation and um, you know, issues with the, min- the way that we treat the minority population. You know, we've had our share recently of black men gunned down the street by police when they're unarmed, you know. Um, all those things are present here too and they sort of get swept away by the narrative that we have um and so in that way sometimes I find it hard here um but I also just I mean I'm southern can't imagine not living in the south I love southern people and the kindness and I think a lot of that is here um and I yeah I love the people that I know here and I think you got the perfect balance because all of the rest of the country also comes to Austin for one week a year, and then you can yeah. see everyone for South by Southwest, and then everything is good. And they've added sports. They yeah, added I mean, that was, you were on a better. panel, right? I was. I was with Bomani, Jones, and Sid Ziegler from Outsports. Uh, two very good people. Uh, yes, it was a really great panel. It was really fun. Yeah, no, I, I think that there's a really good contingent now of, like, really cool young people who are, like, doing good things in sports. Like, Bomani's doing pretty good things. Uh, Katie's doing amazing things. Yeah. Uh, I know Rembert was down there, too, and he's not really in sports anymore, but he's... Well, he was on Katie's podcast the week after you. Yeah. Um, He he actually recorded before me. Oh, really? So I had heard about the recording before. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Well... I mean, it, it just, like, sounds really cool. Like, and I, I do want to go down to South by at some point. That's on my list. I'm hoping that uh, that could be a next year thing, but there's so many things to do, and I don't have enough time off or money to do it. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, South by is not easy. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, hard enough when you're a local, but then people who come in and pay, I don't, I actually don't even know how people manage it. I'm hoping to finagle at some point. But anyway come to the end of the Hammer Time podcast this week. Jessica, thank you so much for joining. This was really, really good. Uh, just to maybe leave us on a good note, uh, first of all, people follow you at, at SCATX, but mm-hmm. also 
so is there any promotion happening around your book? Are you going to be traveling anywhere? Is there going to be anything going on around that that you can share with yeah. us? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know a ton. There, I'm learning that part of the of how to do this. Um, there will be. I definitely will be in Pennsylvania and hopefully New York. I'm going to have a launch party here in Austin at Book People. Um, I'm trying to – I'll be in Portland for one weekend. Um, so I'm trying to set all that stuff up and get it in place, and we'll see. But um, I, lo- I love going around and meeting people and other cities so i'm hoping to use the book as an excuse to do that well yeah well let us all know once you're in new york and we'll definitely figure something out and i will bring my uh my cadre of small young liberal people who all want to meet you because there are people (laughs) who follow me and want to meet you uh but anyway no jessica thank you so much this was really great thank you awesome and that's this week's hammer time podcast uh rate us on itunes share the pod listen to it tell me what you think at ethan ham Otherwise, we'll talk to you later.